This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. And so I go on to chapter 4. And what we find in chapter 4 is the throne room of God. Or to put it differently, it refers to the... Well, what do you call it in the computer when you want to work with the settings in a computer? Control. Control. That's what you have here in chapter 4. And I would also like to say that nowhere in all of Scripture do you get such a good view and portrayal of God's throne as in chapter 4. It is beautiful. Okay, we begin on page 182. 182. Bottom of the page, verse 1. After these things I saw and look, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard as a trumpet talking to me said, Come up here and I will show you what must happen after these things. Now, the expression, after these things, appears ten times in the Apocalypse, of which five are followed by the verb, I saw. There's no indication where the time has elapsed since the writing of the seven letters to the churches in the province of Asia, for that is not the point. John is seeing a different vision. He is given the opportunity to look into heaven and to describe what he heard and saw. Paul also had that experience. And he says, I heard inexpressible things that man is not permitted to tell. Second Corinthians 12.4 John is observing and in astonishment says, look, as if the reader is able to see what he is permitted to see. The report that John gives is couched in symbolic speech and should be interpreted symbolically. That is, the door to heaven is a figurative expression that conveys to John the limits of his heavenly observation. Not everything is visible to him. Notice the passive voice is used. Perhaps a linguistic device to avoid writing the name of God. The clause would then mean a door was opened in heaven by God. But the one seated on the throne is too awesome to describe. Hence the seer can only speak about someone sitting on the throne. It never says God is sitting on the throne. God had opened the portal of heaven and left it open so that John would be able to see the divine throne 
and revealed God's sovereignty to fellow believers. John was not the first mortal who was permitted to see heaven. In a dream, Jacob saw a stairway reaching to heaven from where God addressed him. Jacob exclaimed, This is no other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Genesis 28:17. Also, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel were allowed to see God's celestial throne. We continue. And the first voice that I heard as a trumpet talking to me said, the seer is now connecting the first and second visions by identifying only the voice of Jesus. When John encounters the divine, he avoids identifying either God or Jesus by name. The name Jesus is not found as Jesus appears to him on the island of Patmos. The reference to the trumpet is not only a connecting link, a connecting link for the two visions, but a Jew would immediately react to this sound because it meant that something important was to be heard. The trumpet sounded at the giving of the Decalogue, the beginning of the new year, the onset of the Feast of Trumpets. In addition, John also knew that it introduced the return of the Lord. He knew by the trumpet sound that he would receive new revelation. Come up here and I will show you what must happen after these things. The voice of Jesus invites him to come up higher through the door and personally see the unfolding events that will occur in the future. Moses had received a similar command from God who said, Come up to me on the mountain. Moses was with God on Mount Sinai, while John in a vision is permitted to enter heaven. Inviting John to come up to heaven, Jesus tells him that he will show him future events. That is, John is permitted to see the future unfolding before him from a heavenly perspective. He is told about the things that must take place. They are predetermined by God and part of His divine plan. God is busy working out His plan of salvation and John is giving the privilege of seeing what is going to happen in the future on earth. In fact, the phrase after these things means in the future. The visions that John is permitted to see include both realized and unrealized events. They refer to the past and present and comprise the future. Verse 2. Immediately I was in the Spirit and look, there was a throne standing in heaven and someone sitting upon the throne. The word Spirit should be capitalized in harmony with 1.10.17.3.21.10. John's experience here echoes that other saints, that of other saints who were in the Spirit. Some scholars use the lower case to refer to the human spirit or translate the Greek text with the phrase in a prophetic trance. This is done by Robert Thomas in his commentary, John Walford, and Wilfred Harrington, and David Arney, and G.B. Caird. 
But these translations miss the action of the Holy Spirit. Notice also that in an indirect manner, John alludes to the three persons in the Trinity. Here we are. The Father on the throne, the voice of Jesus as a trumpet, and the agency of the Holy Spirit. John reports that he was immediately in the Spirit. This may signify that he was in that condition all along with the intermission, but now again experienced the Spirit's power by which he was able to see and hear celestial sights and sounds. Writes William Hendrickson, When a person is in the Spirit and being in that state has a vision, there is suspension of conscious contact with the physical environment. End of quote. Physical organs are not in use during the vision, for the soul assumes their functions. So John sees the throne of God and hears the voice of Jesus. Jewish rabbis in ancient times seldom described God's throne for fear of desecrating the divine name. They were forbidden to speak openly about heavenly mysteries and those who spoke about the throne ran the risk of profaning the deity. Hence, few rabbis dared to write publicly on this topic. But John is given the honor of ascending to the throne room, which is the very presence of God, and to relate what he saw. Rather than give a description of God, which is forbidden, or of heaven as such, John presents a symbolic portrayal of the divine throne and those who gathered around it, four living beings, 24 elders, many angels, all other creatures from the entire universe. He sees the Lamb, seven lamps, and a sea of glass. If there is one word that dominates this chapter, it is the, the term throne. It appears 13 times in 11 verses. It occurs repeatedly in the Apocalypse, in total some 37 times. But chapter 4 is the chapter that describes the throne of God. The purpose for this description is to demonstrate that God is the supreme ruler of the universe. He governs everything so that nothing happens without His will, whether good or evil. He assures them that He and not Satan is in control. That is why this vision of the universe governed by the throne precedes the symbolic description of the trials through which the church must pass in chapter 6. Verse 3, And the one sitting was like a jasper stone and a carnelian in appearance and a rainbow encircled the throne like an emerald in appearance. Now, how does a mortal being who is privileged in a vision to see the throne of God speak about the one sitting on it? John gives his readers a sense of the majesty and beauty of the appearance of God and the throne by referring to three precious stones, the jasper stone, 
the carnelian, and the emerald. The jasper is also mentioned in the description of the new Jerusalem in chapter 21. There John, speaking of the glory of God, says, Its brilliance was like a precious stone as a crystallized jasper stone. 21.11 It may be a variety of quartz that came in various colors so that God's glory transmitted through this stone presented indescribable beauty. The jasper stone in antiquity may be different what we call it by that name today. In general, commentators compare its brilliance to that of a diamond. And that may very well be the case. This brilliance is a picture of the unapproachable light of God that allows no one to see Him. 1 Timothy 6.16 The second stone is called carnelian. It is dark red, orange red, reddish brown in color. A rainbow with the color of the emerald appeared around God's throne. We count seven hues in the spectrum of a rainbow. And one of these colors is green. An emerald as we know it is green. John, however, saw the entire rainbow as a shade of green. Likewise, a precious stone in the fourth foundation of the New Jerusalem city walls was emerald. 21 verse 19. The rainbow is God's covenantal sign that he would not destroy the earth again with a flood. Genesis 9.15 John uses the word iris for rainbow, which was a non-biblical word. But to be clear to his readers that he meant a rainbow, he was not afraid to adopt the term. What is the significance of this semicircle over the throne of God? The symbolism of the rainbow is not clear except to say that it expresses God's faithfulness as he keeps covenant forever with his people. By it he expresses his grace and mercy. Verse 4. And around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and upon the thrones were seated twenty-four elders clothed in white garments, and on their heads they had golden crowns. The mental image we receive of the 24 thrones is that of a square with God's throne in the center and six thrones on each side of the square. In the canonical scriptures, the term 24 appears only in the Apocalypse and refers to either thrones or elders. This eliminates parallels that might cast light on the meaning of the number 24. <clears throat> on these thrones were 24 elders who had two distinguishing marks. They were clothed in white garments and wearing golden crowns on their heads. These marks, together with the expression thrones, may aid the interpreter in explaining the meaning of this verse. For instance, the saints are invited by Jesus to sit with him on the throne. 3.21 and the saints in heaven are given authority to judge by sitting on thrones. 20 verse 4. 
There is a distinct difference between angels and saints. First, not angels but saints receive this privilege. Next, although angels appear in white garments, the saints are dressed in white apparel that is, signifies a purity that comes from being cleansed from sin. Third, crowns symbolize authority to rule with Christ. This is a privilege granted not to angels, but to the saints. God created Adam from the dust of the, the earth, crowned him with glory and honor, and appointed him to rule. But God created angels as spirits to minister to and serve the needs of his people. Although Adam sinned, Jesus as the second Adam came to redeem him. But those angels who fell into sin are not redeemed by Jesus Christ. Hebrews 2.16 Adam and Eve, with their offspring, are created in God's image. Angels are not created in His image, but are only messengers. When God's redeemed people are translated to glory, we know that they surround the throne of God and the Lamb. Their representatives are the 24 elders who occupy thrones to rule and to judge. They wear white garments to symbolize purity and wear crowns to indicate victory. They as covenant people are privileged to rule with angels as messengers serve. Hendrickson appoint, pointedly observes, Quote, these 24 elders are mentioned first for the simple reason that they are first in, in importance and in glory of all creatures in heaven. End of quote. The chapters 4 and 5, in chapters 4 and 5, John relates that around the throne are living beings, which are angelic beings, angels, and elders. We are led to believe that the elders are the representatives of the saints. If this were not the case, mention of the saints in heaven would have been neglected. The traditional interpretation of the 24 elders is that this number is the total of 12 times 2, namely 12 Old Testament patriarchs, 12 New Testament apostles the representatives of those redeemed by Christ. Victorinus, <coughs> notice, Victorinus of Petau in Pannonia, that is Hungary, who died in 304, first suggested this view in his commentary on the Apocalypse. Many modern scholars have adopted this view as a symbolic interpretation of this passage with variations, Biblical evidence supports, bolsters this interpretation, for elders were an integral part of Israel's religious life in the Old Testament era. In the days of Jesus and the apostles, elders were members of the Sanhedrin and prominent in local Jewish communities. Next, Paul appointed elders in the churches he had founded, Acts 14.23 and instructed Titus to appoint them in every town on the island of Crete, Titus 1.5. And in the post-apostolic age, 
elders took leadership in the government of the local churches. The Greek term presbyterion, presbytery, appears in Luke's writings and in the pastoral epistles to designate a council of elders. The term elders, presbyteroi, presbyteroi, occurs twelve times in the Apocalypse. For example, they sit, fall down in worship, speak and sing. The unity of the body of Christ is exemplified in the symbolism of the new Jerusalem. <clears throat> this city has a great high wall with twelve gates. The names of the twelve tribes of Israel are written on these gates. And the wall of the city has twelve foundations. The names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb are written on these foundations. Another view interprets the expression elders as angelic beings. These angels are dressed in white garments, as is evident from numerous passages. In his epistles, Paul alludes to angelic hierarchies that Christ created with respect to thrones, powers, rulers, and authorities. Also, the Old Testament refers to a council of heavenly beings consisting of an angelic host. Perhaps the number 24 preceding the word elders understood as angels is derived from the 24 priestly orders that are mentioned in the Old Testament. But do angels have anything in common with priests? Are angels kings who wear crowns? Are angels giving the duty to judge human beings? The answer to these questions is no. Angels do not sit on thrones. Elders do. Indeed, if the, angel, the elders are angels, then redeemed humanity is not represented at the throne. I conclude that in numerous respects, elders are of greater importance and of higher rank than angels. The 24 elders represent the redeemed saints. And with all the angels and all living creatures, these elders render praise honor, and glory to the Lamb. Any questions on all that? If not, I go on. But uh, <laughs> This is, in my opinion, the interpretation. I, I hate to be negative because that is not my nature to take somebody down. That's not the case. But if angels are supposed to be elders, you run into all kinds of problems. Then where are the saints and who represent the saints but the elders? I continue. <clears throat> and from the throne were proceeding flashes of lightning, rumbles, rumblings and crashes of thunder. Seven flaming torches were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Yes. 
Yes, I'm certainly. Sorry. I should have asked it earlier, but it just occurred to me. You were talking about angels there and them not being the same as the elders. But what about earlier in chapter in chapters two and three, where the Lord addressed to the to the angel of the church and and there you kind of link those with the pastors of those churches. Right. How do you how did you I wasn't quite sure how you <laughs> made that reference earlier to the okay. pastors. Although I do think that it makes more sense that he would address the pastor and angels. The question is, what do you do with the reference to the angels in regard to the seven churches, as in chapters 2 and 3? And now you have angels in respect to elders. The answer is that John uses Greek words which have more than one meaning. Now, in regard to chapters 2 and 3, he points out by way of the context that angels are messengers. And then in the context of a given church, let's say in Ephesus, who is the person who on Sunday morning, 11 o'clock of course, is bringing the word of God? Who is the messenger? And the answer is the pastor. So we may identify the pastor with the angel of the church in Ephesus. So that's rather clear. But when we come to chapter 4 and we read about elders, I don't think we have any reason to say now the elders. That means angels. Because now you go the other way around. If you had said elders are angels... So if the word in Greek was angels and we interpret it as elders, that's another story. But the word distinctly is presbyteroi elders. And I would say hold on to that word and don't interpret it as angels. Okay? Anything else? Let's go on. <clears throat> we read this passage symbolically. Because the throne of God is so awesome that John can portray it only with natural phenomena such as lightning, rumblings, crashes of thunder. These are symbols in nature displaying God's grandeur, power, and might. Then we read of seven flaming torches were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Once more, a representation of the Holy Spirit's fullness. This goes back to the prophecy of Zechariah, where he speaks about the lampstand in the tabernacle. This lampstand has seven lamps stood in the area that was in front of the Holy of Holies. The display is much more that of blazing torches than that of oil-burning lampstand. The blazing fire of the torches provides light, but also depicts God's holiness that brooks no sin in its presence. Then you have the seven torches represent the seven spirits of God. The symbolism of the fullness of God's Spirit points to the work of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit performs in regard to interpreting God's will, encouraging and comforting His people, sanctifying saints and reproving sinners. 
What do we do with the sea of glass? Now, there are a number of interpretations. Here's one of them. Just listen. G.B. Caird, who writes a commentary on Revelation, writes as follows. Quote, The sea of glass is the reservoir of evil out of which arises the monster that is the beast rising from the sea. Now, I had to take a double take. <laughs> now, G.B. Caird, do you use your head at all? <laughs> we are talking about the throne of God. We're talking about holiness. And now you say that this is a reservoir of evil. <laughs> well, I thought I'd put it in my commentary so that people could say, huh? <laughs> yes. It is hard to imagine a pool of evil at the throne of God when no sin is allowed to enter. Others compare the phrase to the bronze basin of water in use at the temple of Solomon. And even my predecessor, Hendrickson, goes that far. I object. I would say that Christ died for sins and that was the last sacrifice. Now, there is no Sea of crystal as a bronze basin of water in use in the presence of God. Christ washed our sins away. It's finished. Still other suggestions are the firmament that separates heaven and earth. A heavenly sea that separates a holy God from all that He has made. Or a picture of the glassy Aegean Sea on a summer day when John exiled on Patmos. All these representations have some value, but because John is describing heaven with symbols, we must avoid being dogmatic on this point. Perhaps we do well to pay attention to the comparatives as it were and like. Glass in ancient time was opaque while crystal was clear. The emphasis appears to be on perspicuity to indicate God's infinite understanding and insight. I continue with verse 6 and 7. In the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and back and the first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying angel. Here we have the four living creatures, and we may go to Ezekiel chapter 1 verses 5 and 6, where we have the reference. John sharpens this prophecy by giving a clearer description of place and appearance than Ezekiel. I suggest that these four living creatures encircle the throne at four points that are equidistant from each other so that from whatever angle we view the throne, one of these beings always occupies a central position. I admit that this is only supposition, 
For no one, including John, can fully describe God's throne. And then we have the four living beings. They are not immobile. Rather, they serve God as messengers. And again, all this goes back to Ezekiel and also to Exodus 25, verse 20. I move on. The first living creature was like a lion, and the second living creature like an ox. The third living creature was, had the face like a man. The fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. And now the church fathers have had a heyday. Just listen and see what they have to say. Origen, Victorinus, and Athanasius saw the four Gospels depicted by these four symbols. Now, if you can keep all this clear, you do well. If not, you're in the same league as I am. Here it is. Origen saw Matthew as the man, Mark the eagle, Luke the ox, John the lion. Victorinus had Matthew as the man, Mark as the lion, Luke as the ox, and John as the eagle. Athanasians had Matthew as the lion, Mark as the man, Luke as the ox, and John as the eagle. Confusing plus. The confusion testifies to their imagination, but not to a helpful understanding of revelation. All we can say for sure is that these four faces characterize the cherubim symbolically. Here they are. This is my interpretation. They embody boldness and courage, strength and tenacity, intelligence and sagacity, dispatch and swiftness. The four living creatures are sent out to serve the members of Christ's church. Note that in the phrase four living creatures, the number four is the numerical number for completeness in Revelation. Verse 8, And each of the four living creatures had six wings around and inside. That's really on the inside of the wing. So when the wing is stretched out, it's on up and down. The ups, the, one point, the top of the wing and the bottom of the wing. They were full of eyes and had no rest day and night. They were singing, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Straight from Isaiah chapter 6. Where Isaiah is permitted to look into heaven, he sees the seraphim. And also he hears them singing, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. I go on to the angelic so, uh, song recorded in, in uh, Isaiah 6, verse 3. The Christian hymnody has the threefold use of the adjective holy in the well-known hymn written by Reginald Heber, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, early in the morning our song shall rise to Thee. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. 
verse 9 and 10. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one sitting on the throne and they worship the one living forever and ever and they cast their thrones before the throne. They cast their crowns before the throne. At the bottom of page 193, I refer to Handel's Messiah was first performed in London in 1743 in the presence of King George II. The king rose from his seat when he heard the Hallelujah Chorus. By rising with bowed head, he indicated that not he, but Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The Messiah reigns forever and ever. The 24 elders cast their crowns before God's throne and render him the highest accolades in heaven and on earth. Dr. Kisselmacher, if I could uh, ask you a question in, in regard to this. Uh, in light of the doctrine of eternal rewards, uh, there are people who will say, yes, God will reward our works, but... Uh, in the end, we all come out even because we all lay our crowns before Jesus. And then, yet, uh, Burkhoff will say in his systematic that there is a degree of bliss and degrees of punishment in heaven based upon our works, even though we're saved by grace, so that our experience as believers in heaven will be different, even though we'll all be blessed. Uh, and this does not negate that. So can I have your... Okay, the question in very short form is, are there degrees of glory in heaven? Quite a lot. Okay, and the answer is yes. Once more, may I refer to the beauty and the perfection of a dandelion. Now, no one will dispute that it is not perfect. You look at the petals, it is just perfection. But what about a rose? What about an orchid? See, if I would please my wife and I come home with a dandelion flower and say, now this is for you, it is perfect. <laughs> she would say, well, thank you. That's all she would have to say. <laughs> but I know I can please her by going to the florist and buy an orchid and say, my dear, this is for you. And she gives me a kiss. <laughs> See the difference? Now, both are perfect. How it will be in heaven? I would say wait and see. But I can tell you there are degrees of glory. So for those who would say the crowns, because Paul says in his epistles talking about a crown, that this represents reward or honor, that because they're all surrendering their crowns, and that represents the, the church throughout the ages, that, that shows that everything goes back to Jesus anyway. Well, yes, we are redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I will be wearing crowns. We'll have palms of victory in our hands. But yet I see differences. 
and we must leave that to God. Now, what you have to do is you have to go to uh, Revelation 22, about verse 15, 16, there you feel, my rewards are with me, Jesus says. Using the illustration of flowers, can you say that one is more perfect than the other? No, I do, do not say more perfect, different in glory, different in beauty. That's how I would say, because perfection is perfection. See, if I use the word quality, can I ever say it was a little bit quality or 50% quality? When I use quality, I have to say it is tops 100%. And that's the same with that lowly dandelion flower. 100%. May I quickly finish this chapter? I shall do it quickly, quickly. Verse 11, You are worthy, our Lord and God, and God, to receive glory and honor and power because you created all things and because of your will they existed that is, they were created. One thing that I'd like to say about chapter 11 is that it ends with God, the Father who is the Creator. Chapter 5 is about Jesus, the Lamb, who is the Redeemer who bought us with His blood. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.